everybody. Welcome back to another bonus episode of the Echo Leadership Podcast. My name is Andy Wood, and I'm one of the hosts. Today, we want to invite you into a conversation that we recently had. Actually, this was an exclusive invite-only conversation that we hosted here at Echo Church with a bunch of church planters and people who are leaders in the church domain. You're going to hear a conversation between myself and Kerry Newhoff. Kerry Newhoff is one of the leading thinkers and innovators in the church world. His style of thinking and the way he approaches leadership is impacting not just church leaders, but business leaders as well. You're going to hear some of the unique decisions that leaders are having to process through during this time. He's going to give us some great ideas of how to think differently, how to pivot. I think you're going to be encouraged by this conversation. If you don't know about Kerry Newhoff, he is also a best-selling author. He previously was a pastor, but he started this whole content marketing organization that just blew up over a period of about eight to 10 years, started reaching literally hundreds of thousands of leaders across the country. I just love this guy. I love his heart. I love the way he thinks. I love the way that he challenges and stretches us as leaders. And so you're going to hear a really, really fun conversation, and I think it's going to help all of us get better as leaders. Let's listen in. So, uh, Carrie, for our time together, how we'll structure it, um, I sent over some questions. and I probably Yeah, they're won't, great questions. Thank uh, you. I may bounce around throughout the questions, and then we'll... You, you can go wherever, like I said. And if there's questions from the floor, like, I'm a pretty open book. So, I just want to make this value for you guys. Awesome. Let, let's start a little bit with, with you, um, kind of going back through 2020. I'm curious to hear in your journey this year, what have been some of the things that have been great about 2020 for you? And <laughs> what have been some of the challenges that you faced in your, your kingdom role? Well, it's been a weird year. I'm not quite in the front lines of the battle like you guys are right now. So it's actually been a really good year. Um, personally, emotionally, uh, you know, I had the panic everybody else has had at the beginning of the year, the what the heck, like, you know, the dominoes started falling in March. And so I've, I've flown over 150,000 miles the last few years. My calendar was booked into 2021, uh, 22, and, you know, had a whole year of speaking wiped out, that kind of thing. And um, being home, it's the most I've been home. So this is the good part. It's... Um, the most I've been home, maybe ever, like I've slept pretty much in my own bed next to my wife for nine months in a row, which is phenomenal. And I love it. If you would have asked me in February, Carrie, how's your life going? I would have been, it's going great. What about all that travel? I'm like, oh, we figured it out. We know we hacked the algorithm. I know how to do time zones. I know, I know where to sit on the plane. I knew all that stuff. Uh, but just being home, Mm -hmm. It's just been like I'm constantly decelerating and I feel like I found a lower and lower gear, which equips me to serve more yeah. and equips me. My staff is happier. They're like, we're not doing meetings while you're boarding a plane anymore or at weird hours because of your time zone. Uh, my wife and I, it's been a really tough year on marriages. Um, she is a former divorce attorney. We mm -hmm. met in law school. I say former because she wanted to help people stay together. That's really hard when you're a divorce attorney because um, <laughs> they're there because they're not going to stay together. So uh, she left a couple of years ago and she's uh, writing a book that comes out next month on helping people stay together. Oh, that's and, awesome. Uh, so we're in a good season in our relationship. But yeah, I mean, I'm on, on calls like this and I was in a live meeting today with my successor at Conexus and like, uh, we've been doing well at Conexus. We finished up the transition this month, so I'm no longer 
teaching pastor or senior pastor. I'm just the guy who started this a long time ago. Uh, I'm him, founding pastor. So that transition's gone really well, but you know, I'm in it every week with Jeff. I'm still coaching him and at his invitation. And you know, it's just crazy. We're not open right now for in-person. One of the few churches that aren't, the virus is going like this up mm -hmm. in our neighborhood. Um, I just got off another call with some leaders that I mentor in leader circle. And they're like, everybody's just mad at me right now. Mm -hmm. And so, and I've seen that too. I've seen the static in the, in the audience, like the, we're getting a much higher level and I don't get a lot of pushback, but we're getting, you know, a lot more static electricity. Um, so it's been a really good year personally to kind of ground myself, to decelerate, to, um, and accelerating like the work I'm doing, but decelerating my personal pace. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's really kind of weird. I was, I was saying to Jeff, my successor this morning, like it's been a couple of weeks ago, I shot my last message and we wrapped up with an interview this week. And I always ask the academic question, like what happens to my relationship with God? And I've been kind of decelerating for a while, but you know, we all get paid to do this, right? So mm -hmm. what happens if I was just a lawyer? What happens if I, I did some other things? And so, you know, not being on the payroll per se anymore, um, it's been a really good like, oh, this is actually richer than I thought it would be and maybe a little bit richer than it was a year ago. So, um, but I'm hoping to use some of that surplus and overflow, not knowing where the next storm will be or, uh, you know, just to, to build into leaders uh, again next year and try to figure out how we can serve better. That's really good, man. So I'm, I've always been curious to know um, in terms of your breakdown, like I know of, of course now you're transitioning out. How were you breaking your time down? Like how much of your time was Connexus? How much is all the resourcing you're doing with church leaders kind of this yeah. year? So I was lead pastor until 2015. Um, and that's when we did our transition in the fall, phase one of the transition. It was a five-year plan. Uh, we're executing the final part of the five-year plan now. And I stepped out of the lead role in October of 2015. So until that point, uh, I put it in a 20% uh, box. It was like allowed to be 20% of my time. So, you know, five o'clock in the morning, start writing a post or, you know, Friday was sort of a staff day off. So I used that for podcasting when I was still full time. And then in that first year, 2016, the only part of the job I really kept was advising Jeff, attending elders meetings and, and teaching. I carried a full-time teaching load. And that was kind of wonky for a little bit. It was like, well, is that a 40 hour a week job? It's a full-time load, but you know, if you've done it as long as I have, it doesn't take you 40 hours to put a message together. Yeah. So we agreed to put it on, um, let's judge the output. Am I producing top quality messages that serve the church well? Who assessed that? What's that? Who got to assess that? You know, that's really interesting. I, I guess ultimately it was Jeff's call. It wasn't yeah. my call. <laughs> I think I produced some lemons <laughs> along the way, but he was overall really satisfied with, with the teaching load. And so then it probably became 80% of my time. This year I, I ramped down to halftime teaching. So it's probably 95% of my time is, is leaders. But it's really interesting, Andy, because like literally it's been two weeks ago that I feel like it's almost like uh, I'm trying to figure it out because time-wise, if you look at my calendar, it wasn't a big draw in my calendar, but I think you guys can probably relate to this. It was like an application that was open in the back of my mind all the time and it was always using energy. Yeah. And I feel like, oh, that application closed. And so it feels like I have more time even though I don't. That's really um, good. I've got a couple more hours, but 
it feels like a lot more than that. That it's really interesting too, thinking about this decision for you. Um, I do think that you're young relatively and you made that decision. I'll take that at 55. I will take that. Thank you. So you made that decision earlier than a lot of senior leaders do. A lot of founding pastors do talk about that process. Like what led to, in addition to you doing this greater kingdom role, what led to you stepping into this, stepping out of the church that you started? Yeah, I like how you nuanced that question, Andy. So yeah, I did not know that this would be my life in 2020 uh, or even, you know, like not not the weirdness of the year, but like I didn't know that I'd have the audience I have, the opportunities I have. But uh, I'll take you back to when I was 30, 35. Um, I was in a mainline denomination at the time, an evangelical on a mainline denomination. And I saw a lot of guys in their 50s. It was mostly guys who were who were phoning it in, who just... They stopped leading a long time ago. They would talk about their pension number, years of service plus age equals whatever the magic number was. And I, I was just horrified. And I thought, how do you become one of those people? Like, I never want to be one of those people. So fast forward a decade and a half into my leadership, and I'm in my late 40s, and all of a sudden I found my passion for meetings going down hmm. and my irritation with the everyday going up. And I'm like, well, what is going on? And then as I thought about it and I prayed about it and I processed it, I'm like, oh, this is the seeds for that. This is how that happens. Like you got bored. And when we were navigating, so I was 50 when we did the transition and Jeff's a decade younger than me. I was 50 when, when I did the transition. And I, I talked to a bunch of people around that time. It was months of prayer, seeking wise counsel. And I had one friend who just said, listen, dude, do the leadership stuff and just have everybody else do everything else and, you know, collect the salary and away you go. And I'm like, no, like, no, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that. Just there's something in my spirit that won't let that happen. And I thought, you know, if, if, if you were my boss and you said, you do all the work, I'll take the pay and I'll take the credit. I'd be like, I'm out of here. So I'm like, if he's really going to run it, and the other thing I'd seen is, is the Brett Favre syndrome, two seasons too long. Mm-hmm. I'd seen a lot of guys just hang in there. Like I got one more year left in me, two more years left in me. And so we just opened our broadcast location. It was the last major initiative. We had double digit growth. We had money in the bank, very reasonable debt level. And I'm like, this thing is thriving and alive and growing. Mm-hmm. So in the spring of 2015, it was a possibility. By the fall, it was a reality. But it was like I took a pay cut that I insisted on. I should not be the best paid person. I don't care whether I started it. And like we were putting two kids through university. So and this was a hobby. So I had no idea like, okay, how are we going to do this? It was a step of faith. I don't think it was a leap, but it was a step. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the process. But it started back when I was a young leader watching people my age lose passion, lose vision and hold the position way too long. Wow. You know, it's, it's interesting, even I'm sure you and Brad Lominick have had a lot of conversations about this because he did the same thing with Catalyst, very similar trajectory, stepped yeah. out. Um, and I wonder how that will be for you, like over the next year, watching this thing unfold. It seems like you've been with your predecessor for a while now. So you, you have a high degree of confidence that he's going to do a great job. Um, one, one thing I'm curious about is you kind of have transitioned over the last year and you're having 
all these conversations beyond the local church where you were leading, you're seeing so many different things that God is doing all over the country, all over you know North America and the world. What are some of the things that really get you excited that you see in the Capital C Church happening right now? Young leaders still stepping into leadership. That is something really, really close to my heart. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, the best and the brightest were going into ministry. And I didn't see that so much in my context uh, when I was a kid. It was sort of, well, if you couldn't do anything else with your life, I guess you ended up being a pastor. That was my denominational heritage and we're <laughs> denominational now. But just seeing the next generation get renewed in leadership is like super, super encouraging. Um, I would say, you know, pre-COVID, it was really exciting to see the momentum that we saw in uh, the multi-site movement and everything. I think that's going to shift in the future into maybe micro gatherings or that kind of thing. And I think, you know, this could be our greatest defeat or it could also be our greatest victory. Hmm. And I think with leaders like you, you know, in the mix and, and others, people in the room and and some of the next generation of leaders, I, I think this is a tremendous opportunity. I mean, I joked at the beginning when we were saying hello that I get a lot of pushback on the, the digital stuff I run. But I mean, this is the basement of my house. Like if you get... If you can get 14 million downloads on a podcast from a microphone in the basement of your house, like think about mm. the potential that you have for the local church. It's and maybe like, like scale is no longer an issue. I'm old enough to know that if I tried to do this in the 80s, I needed millions of dollars and someone with like a broadcast facility and a tower and a network that spanned across the nations and then cable came along you know, and there was cable from pretty much the time I was a kid, but you know, that took gazillions of dollars yeah. and, you know, only a few, like the top of the half of the 1% would be able to do that. And now all of a sudden the world's flat yeah. and it gives, it gives us all a shot. It gives a local, and, and if, if your call is to reach your local city, your local community, the Bay area, then that's your call. Like we don't all have to have global impact. But like you have a chance to get into every home in your city now, pretty much for pennies on the dollar, which is which is just exceptional. And I think, you know, the digital natives that are now moving into leadership, people under 30s who, you know, got their first phone when they were 12. That's a different. I'm pretty tech savvy. Like I got the 12 Pro Max and all that stuff. I'm also in my 50s. So I use it differently. And I think about it differently than 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 somebody 30 years younger. Yeah. And I think it's they move into leadership, they're going to bring a different mindset and different approach to things that Gen Xers and boomers and older millennials, we, we just don't have because of the era we were born in. Yeah, that's really good. And I th that kind of segues into like looking at the churches that are thriving right now digitally. Um, one of the questions I, I put in here was around you know, like w churches that have a Stephen Furtick or a Michael Todd, and it just blows up online. And of course, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. But when you're, you're looking at, you know, the majority of churches that are less than 500 or 1,000 people, what are the ones that are really winning digitally that don't have a, bi a big name preacher? What are they doing? And w give some examples of uh, leaders in churches that you think, man, I'd, I'd really want to pay attention to these guys. Yeah, I liked your question, and I wish I had a long list, and I don't. Um, but there is a guy in Oklahoma, no, not Oklahoma, in Omaha, named Myron Pierce, young African-American leader. You may or may not know him. A small church who really started um, 
I think they were sub 200. And so COVID hits and he's like, we're pivoting. We're all in on digital. And all of a sudden he's got micro expressions popping up around the world. And, you know, I don't know whether that's in the dozens or the hundreds or the two hundreds, but we've connected uh, during the pandemic. And I think he sees what's possible, not what's not possible, mm-hmm. which is really encouraging. Um, I see other people getting innovative in terms, there's a guy, it's not like the sub 500 level, but on the East coast of Canada, which is incredibly, it was a wasteland for churches for generations. Mm -hmm. So Brent's like 35 and his church has grown in the last 10 years from a hand, like, you know, a couple hundred people to about 3000 pre COVID. And so he's moving into the reassembled gatherings, but also micro gatherings Mm -hmm. and house house churches. And I think, the difference between like a small group and a micro gathering is a small group tends to be insider focused. It's mm-hmm. like the eight of us and we're going to grow together and learn together. Whereas I think the micro gathering church is outward focused. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's got that empty chair. It's got that, who, who can we invite? Who can we bring? What neighbor can we, can we host kind of thing? So he's starting to experiment in that area. Uh, I, I see another guy, a buddy of mine in Canada, Mark Clark from Vancouver and yeah. like, Mark, Mark, I've known for years, and I think he's going to do it. He's going to build a national church. Like he will soon be in all ten province or twelve provinces, um, and uh, I think you're starting to see imprints of that. And I think it's as much generational as anything. Mm-hmm. And so those are those are some things that really encourage me. So these guys that you're talking about, um, they're doing a good job with the micro churches, and they're seeing. Are they seeing evangelism click in in those environments? Yes. For, yeah. Okay. Yeah, even for our church today, uh, you know, the algorithm is a weird thing because it suggests you on YouTube to weird places. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's not good. But we have, apparently it's somebody in England who was who read my book, didn't see it coming. I don't know how, wasn't connected with a church, found it somewhere, gave her life to Christ based on the book, invited her mom to start attending with her. And now we're trying to figure out how to get them baptized in England. And they never miss a Sunday. Wow. And they tune in with us. And so, you know, is that like a micro expression that we could start there, even if it's a house church? Like, what does that look like? So I think, I think the possibility to start expanding in ways that we hadn't thought about, you have to think about polity and governance and, yeah. and all of those things. But I, I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that we have missed by being so facility-centric. Yeah, that's good. So in the example of the micro church meeting on a Sunday, are these other churches still using groups as kind of a connection kind of back door for people throughout the week, or are they bringing those two together? Uh, I think you might see both in this experimental stage. Uh, I am sensing both and not everybody has the same group model too, right? Some groups are open. Some groups are closed. We have historically been a closed group model. Um, Being a North Point church, we, we would be like, okay, we're going to meet for 18 months or two years or a year or whatever. And then we'll multiply which seems to be the dominant model for groups that sort of emerged over the last 10 or 15 years. But um, I, I almost see it as a, as a both and like in the same way that we have small group pastors now, right? So you're in charge of discipleship or groups for your church. I think we're going to have micro gathering pastors moving in the future. I'd love to see that develop where it's like in the same way that you had somebody who was in charge of your multi-site, yeah. but they were like physical centralized locations you could have a micro gathering person who sort of facilitates, coordinates, you know, make sure it doesn't get too crazy out there kind of person uh, 
to try to coordinate those efforts. But we are like in, in super early days. It is very wet cement in, yeah. in that right now. Yeah, what's cool is several of the church planters in the room, that's how they've start, they're starting their churches now. So they, yes. uh, like Austin Anderson, who's here, he started a church and they were going to launch, I think, in fall of this year. And they basically started their church with three or four house church gatherings. And they would, they pre-record, am I right, Austin? You pre-record on like Thursday and then the church is all, the campuses. They all watch it and then have a discussion afterwards. Yeah, which is awesome. It's a great. How, how about, one of the other things I'm curious, Carrie, is in terms of, first-time guests and evangelism and the people that are new there, um, how, are, how are you guys doing in terms of getting people to actually identify themselves and say, hey, I'm new to this church, and how are those numbers comparatively to first-time guests, identifiable first-time guests pre-COVID? Yes, and I love your phrase, identifiable first-time guests, because the YouTube counter or the Facebook counter, they're completely unreliable. Like, you know, I was talking to Mark Sayers for one of the interviews recently, and he's like, he got this like sermon of his going viral, and he thought, oh, this is my moment. And then he realized he got like tagged onto some kind of video in India about a lion eating a tiger or something. (laughs) That's how how they got like 10,000 views or 100,000 views. So it was totally bogus traffic. And and we know about that. But um, yeah, so what we're doing, we've been doing a lot of experimenting at Conexus. So straight out of the trenches, we haven't figured it out. We tried like, hey, text us your info. And that's like, nobody does that. So, okay, we didn't do that. Then send us your email. Nobody does that. Um, uh, The thing we probably found the most effective is kind of like what you see on websites like mine, like a lead magnet, download the free preaching cheat sheet, right? For leaders or that kind of thing. Yet lots of people doing that. So we started turning some of the past series into little eBooks and um, Jeff sometimes writes, or we hired a ghostwriter once that didn't go well. Ghostwriters, it's really hard to find the right person to do it. Um, But have someone on staff edit a sermon key points into an eBook. And then, hey, if you're with us today, you know, you can get this free ebook on how to deepen your prayer life. Uh, just give us your email, fill it out, and let us know. So that's been very successful for us. We are on pace. I think overall, I, our first-time guests are flat or up year mm-hmm. over year. Wow. Um, it is harder to get digital people to identify themselves than it is physical people. Mm-hmm. Another thing we're trying to do, because we're still virtual only, we could meet, but the results in Canada for people who are going, we're Toronto-based, north of Toronto, uh, who have reopened are as dismal as the stats that UC shared publicly. It's like 30%, 40%. And so we're like, we're going to hold off a little bit until things are a little more certain. So we're digital only. But what we've done is we've mashed up the physical and the digital. So we were noticing our kids' ministry things dropping. Mm -hmm. So you can't ask me eight questions on this because I'm not the lead pastor anymore. So I don't know, but I do know this, okay? There's a box that we hand out to Wombaland families, upstreet families, and it's got like some stuff for the kids and some activities at home. So it's probably very similar to what they would get if they were there on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And we have volunteers come in, they make them all up, and then we distribute them to people's homes. And that has been a big winner for parents because they are climbing the walls trying to figure out what to do with their kids. Mm-hmm. And now it's not just watch a screen. And we've got, the, they've got their own YouTube channel for their age appropriate thing through our, you know, through YouTube. 
And so then it'd be, well, open the box and see what's in there and then look at this and now do this craft and then come back and, and that kind of thing. We're doing the same thing for Christmas. So because we have to have a completely digital Christmas, we probably saw, I think, three or 4,000 at Christmas Eve last year at, you know, 11 million services or whatever you do for Christmas Eve. And we can't do that. It's just, it's just not going to work because that was based on cramming rooms that were available. So that's just out of, so it's 100% digital. So they put together this Christmas box. I can't tell you 100% what's in it, but we're going to be distributing over a thousand boxes. And what happens is you open it, it's an interactive between the physical and the digital, but you also give one to your neighbor. Oh, so that's great. you give one to your neighbor and say, hey, here's the website. Uh, you can tune in live, here are the times, you can watch it later on demand, but this is something you can do. So it's a way of virtually inviting your friends, but it's that weird thing. Cause we're all at the point now where we're tired of zoom calls and we want to be in a room. So we're trying to figure out, and we can't really do small gatherings just because of where COVID is right now. It's a little like the Bay area. Right. So, um, that, that combination of the physical and the, and the digital, and that's a great way to capture people's information. That's really good. What would you say, like, as you're thinking about physical in the future, I know you've gotten quite a bit of pushback. Can you, um, what is like the typical profile of the person that's really pushing back on uh, what you're saying about digital? Yeah, it's interesting. It's not as generational as you think. I've heard, I've heard from people. I don't get any pushback from people leading growing churches or larger churches. They're all like, yeah, 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 yeah. It tends to be, if I, if I can put a composite together, uh, someone who's leading a smaller church who probably, I would imagine, feels intimidated by the whole digital obstacle and we have you know one teenager who knows how to run his phone and that's all we really have i think there's also i mean i'm not a psychologist but you know totally amateur psychology uh i think in a time of of um disruption like we have right now people inherently intuitively go back to what they know mm -hmm. um and so i know how to speak to a room I know how to get people. We were successful at it before. And I think you redefine success. Like the thought that keeps going through my mind is, you know, if the average Tony Morgan stat is that the average return to church is 36% of pre-COVID attendance yeah. in the fall of 2020. Nobody sat there in January and said, you know what? If we get 36% of what we have today, that's going to be a win. <laughs> and people like redefining the wins going 50%. We're at 50%. We're at 80%. It's like, you, did, Andy, I know you well enough. We don't know each other that well, but I know you well enough that you didn't sit there with your leadership team in January and say, hope by December we're down 20%. Like that, yeah. that's a disaster. But now we're there and we're kind of scrambling to try to figure out how do we get this back? And I think the question is more like, okay, yeah, this is going to come back. Like there's going to be a vaccine. It's going to get distributed. There will be some more semblance of whatever normalcy looks like moving into maybe the third and fourth quarter of 2021. Yeah. But we're not going back. We have to go forward. So if you're planting the church today, what does that look like? Are we going to have facilities? Yeah, we're going to have facilities. Um, but I think, I think as I look into the future, you know, and I think about, about the pushback to digital gatherings, there's a, there's a saying among historians that, you know, when it comes to revolutions, the people who profited, profited most from the last regime are, 
most uh, motivated to recreate it. So mm-hmm. in other words, if you were a courtier in the king's court and the king got overthrown, you want the king back because you yeah. got your job and you know it and it's familiar. And the future has, or the past has a nostalgia that the future never does. So I think it's kind of like everything's unknown, the future is weird, but I know this mm-hmm. and I know I can do it and we are relatively good at it and we're going to buck the trends. So I'm going to go back. Mm-hmm. But I think the danger in that, and this is why I keep beating the drum, trying to do it more emotionally, intelligently these days. Uh, maybe <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> but, but why I keep beating the drum is I think culture has shifted. Mm-hmm. If you look at, so my big thing is in 2020, six things moved home. I'll see if I can list them off off the top of my head. Work moved home. Mm-hmm. Some of that's going to pivot back. But Silicon Valley is leading the way. Twitter, Google, Dropbox. There's so many companies who are like, and, and now, you know, Hewlett Packard just announced that they're removing, relocating to Houston. Oh, like wow. you're seeing really big shift in how the tech companies are operating. And I've found them to be months ahead of the rest of the culture in this yeah. pandemic. What's happening in Silicon, like Apple was the first to say no in-person conferences, South by Southwest, which I was jumping on a plane to canceled a week before it was ready to go. And then the rest of the world kind of followed. So Dropbox, there's an interesting podcast interview. I think it was with uh, Reed Hoffman on Masters of Scale, where they are now downsizing their footprint and there's no more private offices. There's just public meeting space. So I'm going to do my work here at my house and then I'm going to go in and meet with you. So they're already thinking ahead. So some of the work's going to pivot back, but I know a lot of CEOs, even in Toronto, they're like, oh yeah, we're never going back. And they were really quick to like get out of their leases, bust out of office space. You see the de-urbanization of areas like people have left New York. Some of them are not going back. So that shifted home. Yeah. And will you see a recalibration? Yes. School. You'll see more homeschooling. Again, a lot of people want school to be normal. There will be parents who go back, but I think the proportion of homeschoolers will rise. Uh, people learned what that appliance in their their kitchen is you know it's called a stove it's like oh you can cook on it right and so people are going to go back to restaurants but i think takeout will be bigger and food will be more home-based rather Mm -hmm. than out-based again it'll swing back but when you look at the percentages when the dust settles and the initial enthusiasm of eating at a restaurant gets over people are going to be cooking at home more because they've learned new patterns. uh travel has shifted uh fitness right my wife was on a Zoom class with a trainer. It used to happen at the gym. Now it happens at home. A lot of people bought kettlebells. That shifted home. Entertainment, releasing directly to your devices and bypassing movie theaters. And then the big question is church. So I think the way we gather publicly and the way we behave, uh, I, you may not have seen it because you guys have been in such strict lockdown, but here I'm an hour north of Toronto and the housing prices are up 30% because Toronto's fleeing the city they're all, they've discovered us now, which I love. I don't love that they've discovered us. I love it up here. And like our housing prices are jacked up 30% because everybody's redistributing. Well, what does that do to big gatherings, to the way we think about work? So I yeah. think the home is the new hub. And then how does the church leverage that? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I'm thinking through. That's really good. So when Does you, that resonate? Like push back. Go ahead and push back. It's fun yeah. to have a discussion. Well, I think it's both end, right? And one of yes. the things one of the things that we learned when we we started regathering physically outside, to put a ton of energy and try to force that 
is almost like you're, you're forcing against something that's not going to have the same momentum. So you have, to, you have to work five times as hard to get one-fifth the results. So we've said, like we're here at Echo, we're meeting outside. The weather's been great, thank God. Um, but we're, we're not trying to double down to say, oh, if we get to 50% or 75% of pre-COVID. But they're, you know, from a conviction standpoint, and I know that there are a lot of people who see it differently, and I'm, I certainly would never argue with somebody who has a different opinion on it. Um, but for us, we've said, hey, what would be, kind of like Life Church and Bobby Greenwald use some of this language, what would be the net effect of every church physically not gathering in a community for an entire year. So for us to be physically open, there are some people we call, you know, the green and then everybody in the student ministry is neon green. Um, but we, we want to have a space for them, but we're not, we're not trying to force that, if that makes sense. Yeah. But what I'm, I'm thinking about preemptively is, okay, if, if the reality is a ton of churches are going to close down in the next year or two, they're not going to be able to pay their bills. I would love to have some of those buildings, you know, three to five years down the road from now. So I'm, I'm just thinking, okay, what are the, the leaders who two, three, four years from now are, are killing it both physically and digitally? What are they doing now to set themselves up for success in, in both lanes, or if you want to include the house micro lane, all three of those lanes, how are they thinking and functioning now to succeed in the future? Yeah, I, th- I think that's bang on, Andy. I really do. Uh, you know, as, as our friend Craig Rochelle says, 100% physical, 100% digital, right? Like, yeah. And, and I, think, I think that is the right way to approach the reopening. And I think you're right. There is going to be, you know, David Kinnaman's prediction is based on the data, not his gut, that 20% of churches are not going to make it. That's a lot of churches. Yeah. When you think about what is it, 300,000 churches in the US. So 60,000 churches are going to close their doors. Like that's a lot. And I think that that green light, yellow light, red light framework that you referenced, I don't know what that was, Ed Stetzer, Dave Ferguson told me about it, but you know, you got green light people who are like, the whole thing's a hoax, you know, Corona's the flu, I need to gather, I'm, I'm going to get together, I don't really care. And then you have the yellow light people. I, by nature, I'm surprised would be a yellow light person because I'm green light and everything else in my life. But with coronavirus, I'm like, yeah, I don't really know. Like I'm, and, you know, here's, here's, here's what I've discovered, okay? I couldn't have told you this. Uh, this is something I'm really thinking about. Jeff and I have talked about it. So the first time in my life, and I've lived five and a half decades, I have not been to church on a Sunday morning for most of the year. Yes, I taught 15 Sundays, but our lockdown was so strict, I wasn't allowed to be in the building. And the first few weeks, I'm like, oh man, I wish I was there. Like, I know I I don't have a role, but you're not allowed because you need the camera guy and this and and that. So I, I had to sit on my porch, like I had to be at home. And then after a month of that, you stop feeling guilty and you're like, Sunday's kind of nice. Like, I, I don't need to watch the service three times, okay? I don't have to do that. There's no value to me doing that. I'm like, maybe I'm going to go for a run or maybe, maybe I'll work on something or maybe, maybe I'll just enjoy myself. Like, what is that? Yeah. And for the first time, you know, when you get an unchurched person, I know you've had this conversation a million times, and an unchurched person says, Andy, I love your church. I believe Jesus is the real deal, or I at least want to kick the tires. But like Sundays are a really special day. 
Yeah. Right. Like, I don't know, man, it's the only day we can sleep in. It's the only day that we can make pancakes as a family. It's the only day I'm truly off. And Pastor Carrie for 25, 30 years is like, you're an idiot and you're lazy and you need to be in here. And now 2020 Carrie is like, no, Sundays are pretty sweet. <laughs> I get it. I'm not justifying it. Yeah. But I'm like, like our volunteers, because we were portable for so long and still several of our locations are portable. Some of their alarm clocks ring at 3 a.m. to go get the trailers, be in the theaters, you know, that whole deal. And I'm like, all of a sudden church went from eight hours or 10 hours to 42 minutes yeah. in your pajamas on a Sunday. Like that's a hard switch back. Yeah. And so I'm really going to be interested to see. And it's like, do you compete with it or say, well, you're all pagans. So all of you who want to sit on your porch, you don't really count. Or do you cooperate it and cooperate with it? And you say, Carrie, we'd love for you to reach your neighbors in your neighborhood. Yeah. Like that's what I'm, I'm thinking about. And it's the first time because I would have been there every single Sunday had I been allowed. But now nine months into it, I'm like, oh, I, I get it. Yeah, that's good, man. You know, I, I think it's interesting too, th- even thinking about long-term framing our expectations so that we look at digital differently. Like one, one of my big regrets in this whole season is that I think when we first started, I saw digital as like a get through COVID strategy. But now mm. that we're nine months in, my perspective has shifted because it's, it's not going away. So we're saying, okay, how do we keep raising more money, look, think differently about digital and look at digital from like a decade standpoint to say, okay, it's 10 years from now, digital is going to be here. 20 years from now, it's going to be here. So we need to build this thing in such a way that, you know, when we're in 2030 or 2040, it's, it's humming on all cylinders. I think one of the things that we've struggled and a lot of church leaders, I've really kind of had good conversations with, we've struggled to figure out what is that flywheel with digital Because like, you know, we're 12 years in, we really had our flywheel built as a church Mm. and it was, it was predictable. Um, And I'm curious to know, like, do you, do you know of anybody or do you feel like you guys at Conexus got your flywheel going and how would you think about that? Uh, That's a really good question. I mean, you know, Bobby and the people at Life Church definitely have the flywheel going. Stephen Furtick's seen a lot of momentum. Mike Todd has. You look at some of those guys who even pre-COVID, like, you know, they're, they're seeing that. No, I think, I think the flywheel is being built. And I think it's really, really hard to control. So there's, there's, there's two things. It's a really great question. And like, I think in my company, I know I, I've, I've ridden a flywheel. Like for a guy to just start blogging for fun and then realize a million people show up and then it turns into a million a month and you're like, what? what?" And so I have parameters for that. But, you know, one of the things we just came out of a month of strategic planning in my company and, uh, you know, the 22, 24 year olds on my team are like, you're a writer, but it's all going video. And I'm like, I know, I just got out of video, like preaching, like I really enjoy writing. It's kind of nice just to sit here with nobody else. And (laughs) I express my thoughts really well with writing. And so, but they're like, yeah, and that's like 82% of the web is going to be video in the next little while. And then how do you stand out? So next year, you'll see almost every new piece I write will have a video companion. I'm building out a studio in my house. 
uh, this, this winter. So we're trying to figure that out. Now, the challenge with the flywheel is you, you and I read this years ago when Michael Hyatt um, wrote Platform. And it's a very outdated book, but the principle, just because the world changes that quickly. But what he said is really good. He said, if you try to build your church on an algorithm, you're, um, <laughs> yeah, okay, here's an analogy. Try to build your church on an algorithm. You're on rented space. You need to own your space. So for years, one of the reasons my writing got circulated so much was Facebook. And then some of you may remember the day in 2018, almost three years ago, when Mark Zuckerberg said, we're going to penalize um, content creators and actually put your friends back on your profile page. And so overnight, my um, Facebook traffic dropped by 80%. Wow. And I'm like, wow. And then this summer, Google search travel. We're still up year over year, but Google search traffic dropped, uh, what was it, 30% because they changed the algorithm. Mm -hmm. And so now when you're searching for church growth, maybe I don't come up as often. I don't know exactly how that works. YouTube is always switching the algorithm. So my, my last series, you know, the first, we're, we're a church of 1500 pre-COVID. The first message I did in my final series at Connexus, 15,000 views. It's like, I'm the most famous person ever. Week three, 692. It's like, that's the algorithm. Yeah. Okay. So it's the suggested feed. So that's all rented space. And as soon as you game the algorithm, somebody in Silicon Valley changes it. Yes. And you have zero control over that, zero control. And they're going to continue to tweak the system. So what I've done over the last few years is I've, I've, I've pivoted when Zuckerberg made that decision. I was kind of joking around my email list and I had, I don't know, 10, 20,000 leaders on my email list. And then I realized, no, I own my email list. Like, that's the one thing I own. It's not controlled by algorithms. It is as to what gets determined spam. But we've grown that to almost 80,000 leaders now. And that is what I have built the last few years off of. And we've seen a much expanded reach. And, um, you know, we, we want to grow that list to 150, 200,000 leaders in the next year or two. And, um, and that's what I can control. So the problem with building, it's almost, and here's the analogy, Maybe it's a bad one. I just thought of it when, when we were talking. But like, you know, every church wants great location. So it's like, oh, we're going to be right by the freeway. And the freeway is going to be awesome. We'll have highway visibility. 10,000 cars every morning pass our church and they'll see Echo Church. And it's going to be amazing. And then all of a sudden, the, 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 the county or, you know, the state builds a whole new freeway yeah. or blocks off your intersection. And you're like, crap, now what do we do? That is what life online is like. Yeah. If you think about Mike Todd, whose name has come up a few times, one of his geniuses in marketing relationship goals, which was a number one New York Times bestseller, his relationship goals had been a, a, a current hashtag on Instagram for a while. And so he actually titled his book and then he would hashtag relationship goals. So people who were not searching for Mike Todd discovered relationship goals, bought his book, shared it with their friends. And that works magnificently until it doesn't because all of a sudden it's not hashtags and it's not Insta stories, it's reels. And now you got to learn real. And then it's not Instagram, it's TikTok, And then it's Twitch. And yeah. then it's, you know, discord. And then it's like, ah, yeah. So it's a really, really tough thing, which is why it's so important. Don't focus so much on the crowd, focus on the core mm -hmm. because that core is I've got your email or I've got your cell phone. We're also going to move into, uh, 
texting leaders next year. You got to figure that whole thing out. But, you know, what is it that you actually own in this space? And then that is your foundation. So right now it's email and anybody who makes even a dollar online will tell you one email address is worth a thousand social media follows. So it sounds very 90s and very Microsoft-ish, but it's absolutely true. And any online marketer would tell you that. So what I would say, you know, the best thing you can do if you want to build a solid foundation, grab everyone's email, grab everyone's cell phone number. You own that. You don't actually own your Instagram account or your Facebook or your Twitter account or it's your really TikTok good. account. Yeah. Carrie, one, one idea I had um, that I think would be super helpful would be a whole training resource on how to leverage email. Um, so I know Jeff Walker, you've read his launch book. I think you've yeah, referred- yeah. Uh, product launch formula, PLF or PFL. Yeah. But if there were like, if you took that whole launch concept and you could put it in like a system for the, for church leaders, that would be so helpful. You know, we're looking at that. Honestly, we're talking about course development for 2021. And I think for those of you who haven't signed up for the church leader toolkit, just go to churchleadertoolkit.com. It's free, but I will steal your email now. You know why? And um, (laughs) it's very intentional. Uh, There, there's some of the secret sauce in there in a couple of the units on um, just like, you know, kindergarten level marketing stuff, just an introduction. But I've thought about doing like, because I've been studying online marketing for a decade, I think it might have been something God put in my heart. But long before I ever started blogging, started listening to like Pat Flynn, Smart Passive Income, not that it was about the money. It was just, how do you grow an audience? How do you figure this digital space out? Uh, Reed Hoffman, Tim Ferriss, uh, Amy Porterfield. It's all left coast people yes. uh, who do this thing. And that's where I'll end. Donald Miller, story brand, if you follow him, soon to be uh, Business Made Simple. Um all people like that, those leading voices, if you can start just listening to online marketing people, even Grant Cardone, or mm-hmm. to a certain extent, Tony Robbins, like I think Amy Porterfield used to work for Tony. Um, those guys have it all figured out. And yeah. they have been doing it for years because it used to be the infomercial in your TV, right? And then that died. And so they moved online. So I tried to figure out, okay, I'm just curious in this stuff. I'm interested and those are the things that will actually propel your church to growth. But that's, good, that's a really man. good idea and so noted. That's great. I would love to open it up if any of you guys have questions. Um, I'm just yeah. peppering here. Go ahead, Becca. Going back to what you said about home being the new hub, do you feel yeah. like that model reflects a specific demographic or specifically an age demographic? Or do you think that's relatable hmm. across the board? Because working with students, I find that and maybe this has something to do with like frontal lobe development. I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm seeing that students still are, are craving that like in-person connection. Whereas people past the age of 25 are more than thrilled to be at home in their pajamas on a Sunday morning. Do you know what I mean? So unless they're single, Becca. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good option. Unless they're single. Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> if, if you're 17, you want to escape home, right? Like that's just the reality. So if it's the church basement or the church auditorium, yeah, you want to get out. And I think it could be uh, specific. I think young parents are looking for a reason to get away from their kids and hire a babysitter and for life to go back to normal. 
I mean, how many times have you heard at your church? We've heard it a thousand times at ours. It's like, it's the only hour of the week where the kids are quiet. I don't see them and I can focus on something for me. So I think you will see, and I'm not like all digital. I think there are going to be some people who are 100% digital, uh, but I think that's a tiny minority. I think there's a lot of people. And what we'll do is a slipstream between in-person, I'm at Echo Church this week, but next week I'm in the mountains with my wife, but we're going to catch you online, right? So I think it'll be that amplified. We had that pre-COVID, it'll be amplified after COVID. I think demographically, yeah, like people are actually now, I mean, these are early, early days. We're months in, not years in, but people are redesigning their homes based on on what they need. Like it's not the spare bedroom anymore. I was on a Zoom call this afternoon with a guy in the Bay Area and um, I just said to him, Trevor, are you are you back in your office yet? And he's like, no, I redesigned my home office because I couldn't stand it anymore. But it looked like a really like cool office. I think you're gonna see a lot of that. And, um, and I think if you're young and single and you wanna meet people, you're probably gonna go to venues. But I think one of the big pivots and yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. I want to write about it in January, but we have always defined physical attendance as being in our building. In other words, if you're going to attend church, it has to be in that auditorium or in this space that we have access to. And I think physical attendance will probably disperse. I think it could be a gathering in a backyard long after COVID. I think it could be a gathering at a restaurant, that sort of idea of micro gatherings, micro church. And so if we define in-person facility or in-person attendance as this time in this space for everybody, I think we limit the potential. There will always be people there, but if we're like, or you gather over here or you could gather. So it's sort of multi-site, but it, it's almost becoming micro-site. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that makes any sense. So I, I think as long as we define in-person attendance the way we used to, we're gonna be unnecessarily capping our potential. That's good. Yeah, great question. Well, any other questions you guys want to throw out? Maybe some of the church planters might have some questions around early stages. Hey, Carrie, it's good to see you. Thanks for being with us. So Hello, question about engagement with the unchurched or de-churched for a church plant in a digital world. Mm. So thinking about these algorithms and things, the reality is for a essentially no-name church, because church plants, that's what we start out as. Do you have recommendations beyond the email list of how do you build that owner space so that we aren't just reaching people who have heard of a church or searching for a church, but are those de-churched and lost needing community and fellowship? I love that question. Um, yeah, I think, I think you have to think... <laughs> You know, evangelism, if you were a fisher, somebody who fished, fisherman, um, you know, I took it up briefly in the 90s and when my kids were little and was terrible at it and didn't enjoy it. But, you know, <laughs> I had a guy who kind of took me under his wing and taught me how to fish and all that stuff. And he just said, you got to think like a fish. Like if it's Tuesday afternoon at four o'clock on a sunny day and it's 75 degrees and you're a bass, where would you be? Oh, well, that's a really good question, right? Because that's how you find the fish. And so if you're a cynical 30-year-old tech-type person with a backpack in Silicon Valley who's atheistic slash agnostic and meditates and is into some form of secularized Buddhism, what are your issues? I mean, is that kind of the profile for where you guys are? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 
So what are they thinking about? Well, they're probably listening to Sam Harris and they're probably listening to Dan Harris and they're probably listening to Tara Brack and they're probably um, trying to meditate and they're probably stressed out. And then I'm like, how do I create resources that speak to that person? Hmm. That's what I would be thinking about. So whether that's um, a small ebook or whether that's a video or whether that is you know, um, some kind of engagement um, piece uh, of content that sort of has some intellectual depth to it. Mm -hmm. Because this is one of the things I am worried about for the future is the atheists and agnostics who are are leading today are actually really smart people. They're not stupid people. Mm -hmm. They've thought about this. They know almost every objection. Uh, They think we're simplistic, we're ignorant. And, and the people that you have in your neighborhood where you are, they went to the best schools and they're really, really smart. And, and they're not, you know, oh, I slipped away from church and maybe one day I'll come back. They have disenfranchised themselves from their heritage and they intentionally walked away. Or if you're like we are in the Toronto area, and this is almost more promising, they're now two or three generations away from Christianity. So they don't even know. It's like, Jesus, what do you mean? Like, yeah, I, think I've heard a story about him once, but I have no idea. So I would be trying to figure out what are their issues? What are their pain points? So online marketing 101, figure out the pain points. So if any of you are on my email list today, here's a, here's a hackable thing. You got an email from me. There was no link. There was no video. There was no content. And I just asked you, I just want to know heading into 2021, what are your issues? So even if you could pull 10 people. So Um, I said, hit reply, I will read every one. Well, there's probably now thousands of replies and it's a mess to wade through because I'm going to spend hours, probably days reading all those emails. But here's what I get. It's not an Instagram poll. It's not a survey monkey survey where you have to choose a prescripted answer. I get your problems in your language. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is it's incredibly inefficient I'm looking for some app that will actually collate all the data, but I don't think I can find it. But I'm going to read all those emails. And I just want to know what's really going on in your own words. And some people are going to write me a line. Some people are going to write me an essay. I'll read it all. And then we're going to start to see patterns. And it'll be like, gosh, you know, we just did this strategic planning thing, but we totally missed that people are struggling, I don't know, in their marriages or with their money worse than they said. And then here's what you do. This I learned from a guy named Ramit Sethi. Again, Online Marketing 101, R-A-M-I-T-S-E-T-H-I. He writes a lot about finance, but you should subscribe to his emails because he writes the most interesting emails in my inbox. If you can handle a bit of profanity, he is fascinating. And um, Ramit says, what you do is you lift some of the lines out of what they told you into your marketing copy. So, you know, it might be, the problem with all Christians is they're political and simplistic. Hmm. Now, I I might pull that right out of an email or out of a focus group I did, and then I produce a resource around that. And this guy in Silicon Valley is going, yes, that's exactly what I think about you. And they might even ask you, how did you know? And it's like, you told me. That's really good. So I think too often we think I've got this really good idea and I have to find some people to buy it. And reality is if, if you really want to start something, you find out what they're and you use their language mm-hmm. to figure it out. 
Uh, you know, it could be if, if I was just in a spitball session, a brainstorming session with you, it might be like meditation not working for you. Try this. Hmm. So that can be an introduction to prayer or meditating on the scriptures. You know, there was a, a Hindu friend of mine. I hired him as a trainer a few years ago. And uh, I didn't want to be the pastor in the gym. I just wanted to work out and lose some weight. And uh, he said, what do you do? And I, you know, well, you know, I work with people. And, and he finally <laughs> unearthed that I was a pastor. And then he said, tell me about your, your, your faith or what you believe. And turns out he was a Hindu. And so he would, he would have all these conversations with me about, you know, spirituality. And I said, so tell me about Hinduism. Well, we don't have one God, we have many. And he would pray every morning and meditate every morning. And I'm like, dude, you are more faithful than most of the people who go to my church. Like, this is unbelievable. You pray every day. Like, I promise you, the people who go to our church don't do that. And he goes, yeah, but I don't feel a real sense of connection. And I just threw out one day, I just said, you know what? Pray in the name of Jesus. Just see what happened. Don't just to God or, you know, whoever. Just pray to Jesus. See what happens. Next workout session, he's like, it was like it all went into HD. I can't believe it. Anyway, wow. we baptized him about a year later. That's awesome. So man. there is that that common bridge. That's awesome. Carrie. So um, I would get in their head. I think, you know, looking at this reality of as a leader saying, okay, we're, we're focusing on people who are far from God. We're shifting, we're pivoting. There, there's so much that the people in this room are trying to do at the same time, dealing with their own emotional reality. You know, what we've been through yeah. as a nation. Um, I'd love to hear you as we kind of wrap up our time, talk about what are you doing to keep yourself encouraged? What are some habits? What would you say about showing up every day and just encouraging these, these men and women in the room to, to keep at it in the midst of the, the craziness? Yeah, um, I think some of you might know I went through a bad period of burnout long before COVID. I did not need a global crisis to burn out. I did it all by myself back in 2006 after a decade of leadership. And it was just too many hours, too much work. So I spent the last almost 15 years of my life trying to figure out how not to do that again. And what was that? And what are the rhythms for a healthy life? And, you know, I feel to a certain extent, like where we started, just to, to tie a bow on the conversation, that this year in particular, I've reaped a lot of benefits. So, I mean, in, in March and April, it was like long hours, 18 hours days, lots of partners on the West Coast. So I was on Zoom calls till 11 o'clock at night, figuring out what we're going to do. Ended up launching a new podcast, this Church Pulse Weekly thing I do with David Kinnaman and Barna and, you know, a partnership with Glue in Colorado and so on. So that was sort of new direction. So I had the scramble, scramble, panic, panic, wake up at 4 a.m. wide awake like everybody else. But that is not a sustainable pace. Mm. And so um, probably in a single sentence, the thing that, that has helped me the most is this little tiny mantra, live in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow. Mm. And it's what I've parked my life on for 10 years plus now. And I don't always get it right, but like there's sort of five components. Uh, spiritually, what do I need to do today to help me thrive tomorrow? Emotionally, so spiritually, like my time with God, my, my vertical relationship. Emotionally, uh, in my 30s, I just had so much counseling I had to get through and so much mess in my life and in my heart that I just needed to work through, you know, fear, jealousy, envy, discontentment, all that kind of stuff, self-pity, had to work through all that emotionally. How am I doing 
relationally. We're in a giving profession. This is what we do. We give all day. Who restores me? When was the last time you had a dinner with people and you laughed so hard you cried and five hours felt like five minutes Mm -hmm. because we've all been in meetings where five minutes feels like five hours. So you get to do it the other way too. Um, You know, physically, I was not in great shape in my 30s. I'm in better shape now. And then financially, because financial stress is stress. And there are people who make 30,000 a year who have money in the bank and people who make 300,000 a year who are broke. Mm-hmm. And so it's not about how much you have, it's what you do with what you have. And so I've tried to build margin in all five of those categories and try to live in a way today. So that meant this afternoon, because I knew I had this call at the end of my day when I'm not at my best, I took a nap and I felt better. And you know, I, I didn't overbook myself. So when my assistant called and said, can you jump on a few minutes early? I'm like, yeah, I can do that. And now I got nothing else scheduled. So it is about like to do the few things that you do really well is a lot about just saying no and choosing to have enough white space on your calendar, Mm -hmm. choosing, you know, it's Steve Jobs who said, I'm more proud of what we said no to than what we actually did Mm -hmm. because you have a million competing ideas. And so if your mission is to reach people, what do you need to do? And the last thought I would share is you know, for too many years, I live for time off. It's like, I just need to get to Christmas or I just need to get to March break, spring break. I just need to, uh, to get to summer break or, you know, my sabbatical. I've never taken one, but, you know, the mythical sabbatical. And, and I realized I sort of had an aha moment this year as I watched leader after leader spinning out of control that time off isn't going to heal you because the problem is how you spend your time on. It mm. don't have a sustainable rhythm for your time on, um, it doesn't matter. You could take a month off and you could have the best month of your life, right? You're on the French Riviera, you know, eating grapes, like relaxing, feet up on the beach every day. And then you can fly home. You're in your hamster wheel life and you're dead by 11 a.m. your first day back. It's like, well, that's not sustainable. It doesn't matter how much time you have off. So what I've had to do, and ironically, it's, it's like if you were to plot this out, I've just said no to more and more and more and more over the last 10 years. And the ability to have an impact has gone up and up and up and up and up and up. And I hate it. Like I I said no to a friend. I have a buddy that I used to track with a few years ago. And he's like, just need 15 to 20 minutes with a Zoom call with me and my exec pastor. I got some questions and I know him and I felt bad. And he texted me and I'm just like, I could do it. I've got that time. But I also know myself well enough to know if I have 18 back-to-back Zoom meetings, I'm dead. Like I'm a bad husband. I'm a bad human. I'm not writing well. I'm not interviewing well. I'm not showing up for these events with, with stuff in the tank. So I just said no. And I sent him a couple of, you know, quick voice messages just via text to say, I don't have, I'm not going to make the time, but here are a few things. I hope it helps. And he thanked me for it. And then a whole bunch of other things that just get a no. And I hate it. It sucks because I would love to say yes to everybody, but I find the better I get at saying no, the healthy people respect it. Mm -hmm. And I have a good marriage and I'll get some sleep at night and I'll live to fight another day. It's awesome, man. It's awesome. I love, I love that perspective of shifting how you see your time on. Carrie, this has been so helpful, man. I'm, I'm grateful for you investing in us and being willing to share what God is doing in your life. Um, is it okay if I pray over you before we wrap up our time I together? I would love that. I would love that. 
Father, we are so grateful for the ministry of Kerry and how he has poured out his life into so many leaders all over the world. Thank you for the platform that you're giving to him and the humility which he exudes and the message that he keeps bringing people back to, not just about what we do for you, but who we become as men and women who are chasing after your heart. I pray today a rich blessing on him as he goes to grill on the green egg and hangs out with his wife. I pray that there'd be joy and peace in his heart. I pray that there'd be a sense of uh, even fulfillment, knowing that uh, literally tens of thousands of people in the Bay Area are impacted by the one hour that he invested here. I pray that you would continue to give him wisdom, that you'd increase ideas and innovation and that you would give him ideas that literally influence millions of people and churches all over the world. God, thank you for what you're doing in our generation, that this crisis is not a limiter to the kingdom moving forward, that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I thank you that we get the high calling, the privilege of giving our lives to this great movement that will go beyond us many generations into the future. So I pray your blessing even over what we've heard, what we've received today, that we would be faithful to implement it, to put it into action in each of our ministries. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, guys, that was a fantastic conversation. I was sitting there and my mind w was just blown. I was trying to take notes while I'm interviewing him. And the other funny thing about this conversation is, in my opinion, Carrie is one of the best interviewers. So I, I felt a little bit like I was playing basketball with Michael Jordan, trying to like keep up. Uh, but he was very gracious and it was a fantastic conversation. If you are new to our tribe, I just want to say welcome. From the bottom of my heart, uh, our desire as a community is to serve you and help you get better, help your team get better as a leader. So we want to say we're glad that you're here. We also want to invite you to subscribe on whatever platform you're using, because when you do, we can give you more content, more free, helpful content that will help you get better. Also, I want to encourage you and invite you to share this with some other folks. Uh, perhaps you know of another leader in your circle that needs to be encouraged and needs to be brought into a community of leaders that can help them thrive during the season, invite them in, bring them into the family. We got room on the elevator for more people. Actually, that's probably a bad analogy right now, to, uh, putting too many people that close together, but we got room in this family for more leaders. So invite people to join. And again, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you on another episode of the Echo Leadership Podcast.